Welcome to Come Follow Me, Deep Dive. This is where we take a chapter-by-chapter approach to the scriptures that are assigned by the Come Follow Me curriculum of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. My name is Barry Hillam, and I hope that this podcast will be a benefit to you. In each episode, you will hear a short flyover summary for the scriptural chapter in question, followed by a verse-by-verse reading that is supplemented with commentary from parallel passages of scripture and from modern-day prophets. You might consider adjusting the playback speed in your favorite podcast player. With that, I'm glad you're with me. Let's get started. Third Nephi, chapter 18. Well, now that we have discovered the Savior's willingness to stay with the people in the previous chapter and to perform miracles among them and to show compassion to them, we'll discover something else about him in this chapter, in Third Nephi, chapter 18. And that is that he is not only flexible in his travel plans, so to speak, but as the archetypal master teacher, he is flexible in his teaching style. We'll see that his style is to be ready to change his syllabus and dispense truths to his followers at the most opportune moment, even if that is not the most convenient moment. And what is this most opportune moment to teach then? Well, it is when one's teachings are a response to questions that have already formulated in the learner's minds and hearts. Paul Tillich once explained that the fatal pedagogical error is to throw answers like stones at the heads of those who have not yet asked the questions. This incident in 3 Nephi chapter 17 and now chapter 18 then, where the Savior stayed a little longer and taught the people at their behest, is another way in which the Savior teaches his disciples in 3 Nephi how to teach. So, to restate the previous point, It seems that if the Savior would have followed his original course of intention, where he stated in verse 4 of the previous chapter that I go unto the Father, he undoubtedly would have deferred the institution of the sacrament for the morrow, after the multitude had gone home and processed what they had already taken in. Remember again what his instructions were in verse 3 of the previous chapter. He said, Therefore go ye unto your homes and ponder upon the things which I have said, and ask of the Father in my name that ye may understand, and prepare your minds for the morrow, and I come unto you again. Yet, instead of following through with this plan, the Savior responded to the moment. He discerned the desires of the people and determined that it was best to stay with them, and so he did in the previous chapter, healing them of their infirmities and blessing the children. This sequence will continue into this chapter with the introduction and administration of the sacrament. So that is indeed what will take place in this chapter. We certainly expected at the beginning of 3 Nephi chapter 17, after the Savior stated his intentions to leave, that he would ascend unto the Father. But it's actually at the end of this chapter, in verses 38 and 39, where it says a cloud overshadowed the multitude that they could not see Jesus. And while they were overshadowed, he departed from them and ascended into heaven. So we'll read that at the end of this chapter. But for now, really the subject matter at hand is the sacrament. In fact, Jesus will teach the people so thoroughly about the sacrament on this occasion that it remains a critical guide for us in our understanding of this ordinance in the latter days. For example, the Savior will reinforce the message of the sacrament prayers, which we will later read in the book of Moroni, 
uh, by saying in both verses 7 and verses 11 of this chapter that if ye do always remember me, ye shall have my spirit to be with you. Well, since the narrative has had so much to do with the Savior's presence among the people, I think it is fitting that the sacramental ordinance would provide them with the means to properly handle his pending departure. The gift of the Holy Ghost is the compensating presence that allows the Savior to continue to abide with the people as per their desire, to tarry with them a little longer even after he departs. He is preparing them in this sense. He most certainly does the same for us. While baptism and its essential nature has been carefully established as a key part of the doctrine of Christ, or as the gate of the doctrine of Christ, as Nephi put it, the actual terms of this covenant are actually elucidated upon during the ordinance of the sacrament. It is instructive to note that the baptismal prayer itself does not rehearse the terms of the covenant which it ratifies. We look to the sacrament for that. These two ordinances work in such a complementary way, in fact, that the Savior describes the sacrament in much the same way as he described the doctrine of baptism in 3 Nephi 11, and how he later spoke of his doctrine more generally. He will say in verses 12 and 13 of this chapter, And I give unto you a commandment that ye shall do these things. And if ye shall always do these things, blessed are ye, for ye are built upon my rock. But whoso among you shall do more or less than these are not built upon my rock, but are built upon a sandy foundation. And when the rain descends and the floods came, and the winds blow and beat upon them, they shall fall. And the gates of hell are ready open to receive them. Uh, So that uh, passage should sound quite familiar to us. And it seems to show us that the language surrounding the sacrament is very similar to the language surrounding baptism. Another key statement that we will encounter in this chapter is this. This is in verse 20. And whatsoever ye shall ask the Father in my name, which is right, believing that ye shall receive, behold, it shall be given unto you. The qualifier, which is right, is an addition not always found in other scriptural versions of this expression. It reminds us that God, just as he is so poignantly demonstrated in these two chapters, in 3 Nephi 17 and 3 Nephi chapter 18, is truly responsive to our righteous desires, capitalizing on the readiness of our hearts and blessing us with his presence. Well, let's take a few moments and look at the structure of this chapter before we move into a reading. It has 39 verses, and I've uh, kind of organized it into several sections. The first one is in verses 1 through 7, and it's here where we can see the Savior giving the bread to the multitude and he tells them that he is doing so in remembrance of his body. Then, with our familiarity of the sacrament, or with the sacrament, we would expect the Savior to do the same with the wine. That's precisely what he does in verses 8 through 11, telling the multitude to take this wine in remembrance of his blood. So in these first 11 verses, while we are not given the precise words of the sacramental ordinance, again, we do find that in the book of Moroni later, The ordinance itself is described for us in unique detail as far as scriptures go. Now as we come to verse 12 and spanning through verse 16, the Savior will now speak to his disciples, and he'll tell them that the sacramental ordinance is part of building upon his rock. So of course we just spoke of this in the introduction. And he'll tell them that doing any more or less than this is to build upon his sandy foundation. So he's um, using very similar language, of course, 
to his sermon at the temple, suggesting very strongly to us that there is covenantal uh, overtones when he said that in the Sermon on the Temple, something that we talked about when we went through that. And then, of course, it's similar to the language that he uses at the end of 3 Nephi chapter 11 as well, when he talks about his rock. We can also see that the Savior is saying this on this occasion to his disciples. It seems to be his way of saying, this ordinance must be done just this way. Then in verses 17 through 25, he turns to the multitude. And he tells them to pray always and to meet together oft. And those seem to be the two main messages in this section. And he'll say some really troubling things, some compelling things about the adversary and his desire to sift us as wheat. As verse 18 will say, Watch and pray always, lest ye enter into temptation, for Satan desireth to have you that he may sift you as wheat. So again, at the end of this section, uh, nearing verse 25, the Savior tells the multitude to turn none away. However, in this next section, in verse 26 through verse 34, he will then speak to his disciples again, and even though he's talked about turning none away, he tells them to not allow anyone to partake of the sacrament unworthily. So he returns very specifically to the subject of the sacrament. He says, uh, don't turn them away unworthily uh, in verse 29, but then also makes it clear that he does not want them to exclude these unworthy members from fellowship. So he does not want them to take the wrong message. And very, very beautifully says in verse 32, for unto such, and who is that again? It's those who are unworthy to partake of the sacrament and who should not be allowed to. But then he says, unto such shall you continue to minister. For ye know not, but what they will return and repent and come unto me with full purpose of heart. Then in the five final verses of this chapter, we will find the Savior finally ascending into heaven, doing the thing that we expected him to do once he announced that intention at the beginning of 3 Nephi chapter 17. Before he does so, he will give his disciples power to give the Holy Ghost, as it says in verse 37. Then we'll see that a cloud overshadows the multitude, and it says Jesus ascended again into heaven at the end of verse 39. Well, this is such a wonderful chapter, and we have much to learn from it. Let's return now to verse 1 for a reading. And before beginning verse 1, let's just remember very quickly what it was that just took place at the end of 3 Nephi chapter 17. Angels had come down and ministered to the people. Or more specifically, as it says in verse 24, that these angels descended out of heaven as it were in the midst of fire, and they came down and encircled those little ones about and they were encircled about with fire, and the angels did minister unto them. Then that episode kind of came to an official end, because in the last verse, verse 25, we were told that 2,500 people did bear record of this, and it said that they, all of them, did see and hear, every man for himself. So as we come to the beginning of this chapter, we wonder what will happen next. Well, here is what verse 1 says, And it came to pass that Jesus commanded his disciples that they should bring forth some bread and wine unto him. Well, this is consistent with his actions in the upper room before he went to Gethsemane and Golgotha. And we know that he broke bread as a resurrected being with his apostles and his disciples in the old world as as well. So here's that same pattern uh, taking place here. So the Savior stated his intention to ascend at the beginning of chapter 17, And instead, the miraculous sequence um, that we read of there is what followed. 
So now, as we come to the beginning of chapter 18, is this when he will ascend? Well, no, he's going to break bread with the people, or more specifically, he's going to administer the sacrament to them. Verse 2, And while they were gone for bread and wine, he commanded the multitude that they should sit themselves down upon the earth. So there's some order to what's happening here. He wants them in a sitting position. Verse 3, And when the disciples had come with bread and wine, he took of the bread and brake and blessed it, and he gave unto the disciples and commanded that they should eat. Now remember, we're still in the same day uh, when the Savior appeared, when there was such destruction and calamity. These disciples still had the wherewithal to procure bread and wine on this occasion. The sacrament will be administered again in uh, chapter 20 of 3 Nephi, and there there is no accounting for the bread and wine and where it came from. It just appeared, it seems. Verse 4, And when they had eaten and were filled, he commanded that they should give unto the multitude. So the order of events here again is that the multitude was commanded to sit, the disciples procured bread and wine, uh, the Savior broke the bread and blessed it, so now we're into the bread part of the ordinance, then he gave it to his disciples, they first partook of it, and now uh, it is their job to give it to the multitude. Verse 5, And when the multitude had eaten and were filled, he said unto the disciples, Behold, there shall be one ordained among you, and to him will I give power that he shall break bread and bless it, and give it unto the people of my church, unto all those who shall believe and be baptized in my name. So there's the connection between the sacramental ordinance and baptism. The Savior is making that very clear there. There could have been an element of disappointment here. I think there might have been. That might sound like a strange thing to say in the context of what is happening here in 3 Nephi chapter 18, but by the Savior saying that he will delegate this responsibility to someone else in verse 5, that that person, instead of him, will break the bread and bless it and give it unto the people of the church, suggests that the Savior will not always be with them as he is on this occasion. The people must be wondering about this new era, or if this is a new era, now that the Savior has appeared to them and that he is among them, will he stay among them, and will he be, personally, the way that the bread and the wine are dispensed to them in the sacrament ordinance from this point forward? Well, no. Um, He will delegate that job to others. Verse 6, And this shall ye always observe to do, even as I have done, even as I have broken bread, and blessed it, and given it unto you. Okay, so it should be done into the future, It won't be me that will break the bread. Uh, It will be someone that I've delegated that responsibility to, but you should always observe to do this thing. So, of course, there's a message there for us that we too should always do this thing and partake of the sacrament with regularity. John H. Groberg once said, those who would deny themselves the blessing of the sacrament by not attending sacrament meeting or by not thinking of the Savior during the services surely must not understand the great opportunity to be forgiven, to have his spirit to guide and comfort them. What more could anyone ask? As we worthily partake of the sacrament, we will sense those things we need to improve in and receive the help and determination to do so. No matter what our problems, the sacrament always gives hope. Bruce R. McConkie wrote in his New Witness for the Articles of Faith, Those who partake worthily of the sacramental emblems by so doing, covenant on their part to remember the body of the Son of God who was crucified for them, to take upon them his name 
as they did in the waters of baptism, and to always remember him and keep his commandments which he has given them, that they may always have his Spirit to be with them. Thus, those who partake worthily of the sacrament, and the same repentance and contrition and desires for righteousness, should precede the partaking of the sacrament as precedes baptism, all such receive the companionship of the Holy Spirit. Because the Spirit will not dwell in an unclean tabernacle, they thus receive a remission of their sins through the sacramental ordinance. Through this ordinance, the Lord puts a seal of approval upon them. They are renewed in spirit and become new creatures of the Holy Ghost, even as they did at baptism. They put off the old man of sin and put on Christ, whose children they then are. Now the Savior says this in verse 7, and this is his final expression before he moves into the wine portion of the sacrament. He says, And this shall ye do in remembrance of my body, which I have shown unto you. Of course, we know that he has shown his body unto them in such remarkable ways. And it shall be a testimony unto the Father that ye do always remember me. So your partaking of the broken bread will be a testimony unto the Father that ye do always remember me. And if ye do always remember me, ye shall have my spirit to be with you. There's something really special happening in that promise. And of course, that mirrors the words of the sacramental prayer itself. Elder Dallin H. Oaks put it this way in a conference report in October of 1998. This talk is one that provides tremendous insight into the connection between priesthood service, ironic priesthood duties, the ministering of angels, the gift of the Holy Ghost, and the sacrament. So he says this, These ordinances of the Aaronic priesthood are also vital to the ministering of angels. Angelic messages can be delivered by a voice or merely by thoughts or feelings communicated to the mind. Then Elder Oaks uses this really compelling language, and I remember when he gave this talk. He uses language here that you would think pertains to communication with the Holy Ghost, but instead he's speaking of angelic communications. So he goes on to say, Most angelic communications are felt or heard rather than seen. In general, the blessings of spiritual companionship and communication are available only to those who are clean. Through the Aaronic Priesthood ordinances of baptism and the sacrament, we are cleansed of our sins and promised that if we keep our covenants, we will always have His Spirit to be with us. I believe that promise not only refers to the Holy Ghost, but also to the ministering of angels. For angels speak by the power of the Holy Ghost. So that's Nephi's words, of course, when he says, Wherefore they speak the words of Christ in 2 Nephi chapter 32-3. through 3. So there's the connection that Elder Oaks is making, or of course now President Oaks, is that angels speak to us in a similar way uh, that the Holy Ghost speaks to us. So it is, he continues, that those who hold the Aaronic priesthood open the door for all church members who worthily partake of the sacrament to enjoy the companionship of the Spirit of the Lord and the ministering of angels. That's a stunning teaching from President Oaks. Now this from Bruce R. McConkie. As sacrifice was thus to cease with the occurrence of the great event toward which it pointed, there must needs be a new ordinance to replace it, an ordinance which also would center the attention of the saints on the infinite and eternal atonement. Sacrifice stopped and sacrament started, It was the end of the old era, the beginning of the new. Sacrifice looked forward to the shed blood and bruised flesh of the Lamb of God. The sacrament was to be in remembrance of his spilt blood and broken flesh. 
the emblems, bread, and wine, typifying such as completely as had the shedding of the blood of animals in their days. Now the Savior will bless and administer the wine, and then offer teachings about that in verse 11. So uh, here we come to verse 8. And it came to pass that when he said these words, he commanded his disciples that they should take the wine of the cup and drink of it, and that they should also give unto the multitude that they might drink of it. And it came to pass that they did so, and did drink of it and were filled. And they gave unto the multitude, and they did drink, and they were filled. And when the disciples had done this, Jesus said unto them, Blessed are ye for this thing which ye have done, for this is fulfilling my commandments, and this doth witness unto the Father that ye are willing to do that which I have commanded you. So once again, the disciples are first given the wine after the Savior has blessed it. They drink it until they're filled, as it says. Then the disciples gave it to the multitude, and they did the same. That they did so until they were filled, of course, is curious language, and as we can imagine, it probably does not have to do with being physically filled on this occasion. Verse 11, And this shall ye do to those who repent and are baptized in my name. And ye shall do it in remembrance of my blood, which I have shed for you, that ye may witness unto the Father that ye do always remember me. And if ye do always remember me, ye shall have my spirit to be with you. So a parallel expression to verse 7. The same thing is being said at the end of the administration of the bread as is being said in in the administration of the wine. In both cases, this formalized remembrance will result in the multitude and the disciples who are partaking of this ordinance having the Spirit to be with them. So always remembering him is the key. Elder Christofferson once wrote, and this is in a talk called To Always Remember Him. I wish to elaborate on three aspects of what it means to always remember him. First, seeking to know and follow his will. Second, recognizing and accepting our obligation to answer to Christ for every thought, word, and action. And third, living with faith and without fear so that we can always look to the Savior for the help we need. So now Elder Christofferson expands on these three things. One, seek to know and follow the will of Christ just as he sought the will of the Father. You and I can put Christ at the center of our lives and become one with him as he is one with the Father. We can begin by stripping everything out of our lives and then putting it back together in priority order with the Savior at the center. We should first put in place the things that make it possible to always remember Him. Frequent prayer and scripture study, thoughtful study of apostolic teachings, weekly preparation to partake of the sacrament worthily, Sunday worship, and recording and remembering what the Spirit and experience teach us about discipleship. That's something that I don't know if anybody has ever said it in quite that way. We can begin by stripping everything out of our lives and then putting it back together in priority order with the Savior at the center. Very interesting thing for Elder Christofferson to say. I personally like to wonder if that's autobiographical for Elder Christofferson, if that's a process that he went through. Um, Now, the second thing, prepare to answer to Christ for every thought, word, and action. Always remembering him, therefore, means that we always remember that nothing is hidden from him. There is no part of our lives, whether act, word, or even thought, that can be kept from the knowledge of the Father and the Son. No cheating on a test, no instance of shoplifting, no lustful fantasy or indulgence, and no lie is missed, overlooked, hidden, or forgotten. Whatever we get away with in life or manage to hide from other people, we must still face when the inevitable day comes that we are lifted up before Jesus Christ, the God of pure and perfect justice. 
Now number three, fear not and look to the Savior for help. In short, to always remember Him means that we do not live our lives in fear. We know that challenges, disappointments, and sorrows will come to each of us in different ways. But we also know that in the end, because of our divine Advocate, all things can be made to work together for our good. Section 90 talks about that. It is the faith expressed so simply by President Gordon B. Hinckley when he would say things will work out. When we always remember the Savior, we can cheerfully do all things that lie in our power, confident that His power and love for us will see us through. President Dallin H. Oaks taught in a talk called Sacrament Meeting and the Sacrament, by participating weekly and appropriately in the ordinance of the sacrament, we qualify for the promise that we will always have His Spirit to be with us. That Spirit is the foundation of our testimony. It testifies of the Father and of the Son, brings all things to our remembrance, and leads us into truth. It is the compass to guide us on our path. This gift of the Holy Ghost, President Wilfred Woodruff taught, is the greatest gift that can be bestowed upon man. In the next chapter, of course, the people will pray for that which they desire the most, and that is the Holy Ghost. So that certainly comports with what uh, President Woodruff is teaching there. Now the ordinance of the sacrament is complete. The Savior will now speak to his disciples about the order in which it is done and how it must be done in exactly that way. Verse 12, And I give unto you a commandment, that ye shall do these things. And if ye shall always do these things, blessed are ye, for ye are built upon my rock. But whoso among you shall do more or less than these are not built upon my rock, but are built upon a sandy foundation. This idea of not doing more or less is reflected in the book of Revelation as well. The idea that the, 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 the word as it stands is full, and the covenant and the ordinances that ratify that covenant, they should be done in exactly the way that they were prescribed, not added to or taken away from. Then the Savior continues, And when the rain descends, and the floods come, and the winds blow and beat upon them, again, we talked about this earlier, but that implies that they will come, uh, they shall fall, those who do more or less than this, and the gates of hell are ready open to receive them. So we can think of this as being a parable of a wise man. There's a primary song to that effect, and we envision a wise man building his house upon the rock versus upon the sand, and we can see the folly of building a weight-bearing structure on sand, and we kind of take it at that. Something deeper is happening here, though, because the Savior is saying very specifically that the gates of hell are ready open to receive them. So that's, that's what's at stake here. One must not change the ordinances or rest Scripture. And when we look in the Old Testament, at times when a very heavy punishment is meted out to an offender, such as those at the Tower of Babel or Cain. Or we can think of Saul when he made an inappropriate sacrifice. In all of these instances, it seems to have to do with ordinances or covenants and the way in which they're not being done exactly correct. Instead, they're, they're doing more or less than this, as the Savior is saying here. Elder Gene R. Cook once wrote, Another sign of spiritual immaturity, and sometimes apostasy, is when one focuses on certain gospel principles or pursues gospel hobbies with excess zeal. Almost any virtue taken to excess can become a vice. An example might be when one advocates additions to the word of wisdom that are not authorized by the brethren, and proselytes others to adopt these interpretations. If we turn a health law or any other principle into a form of religious fanaticism, we are looking beyond the mark. Some who are not authorized want to speak for the brethren 
and imply that their message contains the meat, the brethren would teach if they were not constrained to teach only the milk. Now the Savior says in verse 14, Therefore, blessed are ye if ye shall keep my commandments, which the Father hath commanded me that I should give unto you. So now before we move farther into the chapter and the Savior uh, begins to talk about praying always and the ramifications of praying always and the reality of the adversary that surrounds us, here's some summarizing commentary that looks at what we have read thus far with respect to the administration of the sacrament. First this from the Institute Manual. The Savior taught that the principal purpose for taking the sacrament is to remember him. We have an opportunity to concentrate on the Son of God during the sacrament ordinance. We should not allow our thoughts to wander or to be distracted. Elder Jeffrey R. Holland of the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles described several appropriate ways to remember the Lord while renewing our covenants through the sacrament. He said we could remember the Savior's pre-mortal life and all that we know Him to have done. We could remember the simple grandeur of His mortal birth to just a young woman. We could remember Christ's miracles and teachings, His healings and His help. We could remember that Jesus found special joy and happiness in children and said all of us should be more like them. We could remember that Christ called his disciples friends. We could and should remember the wonderful things that have come to us in our lives and that all things which are good cometh of Christ. That's an expression that comes out of Moroni chapter 7 verse 24. On some days we will have cause to remember the unkind treatment he received, the rejection he experienced, and the injustice he endured. We can remember that Jesus had to descend below all things before he could ascend above them, and that he suffered pains and afflictions and temptations of every kind, that he might be filled with mercy and know how to succor his people in their infirmities. Now this from Ogden and Skinner, summarizing the first 14 verses of this chapter. At the first Nephite sacrament meeting, with 2,500 people in attendance, the Savior himself administered the emblems of his body and blood. The people ate and drank and were filled, filled not so much with those physical elements, but with the Holy Ghost. The sacrament is one of the most sacred public ordinances we have in the church, and it must be partaken of worthily, remembering the body and blood of the Lord. The instructions he gave as he administered the sacramental elements constitute the very points of the sacrament prayers. We partake to show our willingness to keep his commandments, to always remember him, and to have his spirit be with us. Doing these things, we are building upon his rock, able to withstand the rains, floods, and winds of temptation, and avoid entering the gates of hell. The instruction to remember his body as the Nephites partook of the bread would have been particularly stunning and powerful, because they had just felt the wounds in his hands, feet, and side. In our day as well, we partake of the bread, and so remember the bread of life. By our remembering his body, our bodies may be raised to exaltation. Now the Savior moves into this new instruction in verse 15, and of course, it's related to what he has just taught with the sacrament, because the context for the sacrament is that we can always have his spirit to be with us and have the attendant uh, protection from temptation that comes from that. So he says in verse 15, Verily, verily, I say unto you, ye must watch and pray always, lest ye be tempted by the devil, and ye be led away captive by him. Well, this expression to pray always appears in other passages as well, and we always wonder exactly what that can mean, since it certainly isn't possible to audibly pray constantly throughout the course of one's day. We know that Enos prayed all day, but that that isn't always a practical thing to be expected to do. So we wonder what exactly is meant by always. 
Here's something that Elder L. Tom Perry once said, Praying always entails constantly being conscious of God and His plan of salvation. It consists of having a continual attitude which directs us during every waking moment of mortality, of maintaining a spiritual posture of thankfulness and reliance on the Lord, of desiring the companionship of the Holy Ghost. Brigham Young noted that to pray always is to live as we pray. I do not know any other way for the Latter-day Saints than for every breath to be virtually a prayer for God to guide and direct His people. Every breath should be virtually a prayer that God will preserve us from sin and from the effects of sin. So some wonderful insights there into what it might mean to pray always. I think another possible interpretation of the phrase is that we are found consistently praying at the same points in time within a a given period, within a given day. Can we always be found praying in the morning and always be found on our knees in the evening? And of course, at other intermittent times throughout the day? That might be another way of conceiving of the idea of, of praying always. I think another possible interpretation of that phrase, praying always, is that prayer is a form of communication with God. It's a form of dialogue with God, which implies that one component to it is when we speak to Him, but another component is when He speaks to us. While it may not be practical for us to be speaking to Him always at every moment, it's necessary for us to think of other things and to be speaking to other people at different times throughout the day. It may still remain practical for us to be in a state of listening always throughout the day, even when we're doing other things. To continually be in a state of spiritual receptivity seems to me that that could be a part of praying always because then the dialogue is still going between us and God. Verse 16, And as I have prayed among you, even so shall ye pray in my church, among my people who do repent and are baptized in my name. Behold, I am the light. I have set an example for you. So they saw him pray uh, in the previous chapter. He most certainly did pray into the Father when he was surrounded by children and the multitude were assembled and looked on. Perhaps that's specifically what his, he's referring to here because he seems to be referring to a, a formal type of praying when he says, pray in my church. Uh, especially because he then goes on to say that this is among people who do repent and are baptized in my name. He will set another example of prayer before the people in the next chapter in 3 Nephi 19. Elder Neil A. Maxwell once wrote in his book, A Wonderful Flood of Light, Each of us plays various roles in family, church, community, business, education, and so forth. Though we have differing needs, we have in common the need to focus on all Christ's qualities, especially those which individually we most need to develop more fully. We can, of course, stop short and merely adopt a few techniques illustrated by the Savior, but unless we emulate Him as completely as we can, we will have deprived ourselves of the great model. Moreover, our emulation is to be of both style and substance. God's love underwrites His listening, for instance. Can we conceive of a God who is a non-listener, or who is lacking in power, or who is unwilling to assert Himself on an issue of principle? As we become more like Him, It will take place in both attributes and actions. And again, that ties into the Savior's final statement in that verse, in verse 16, when he says, Behold, I am the light. I have set an example before you. Ogden and Skinner have written, The Savior is the light we should hold up and allow to shine unto the world. He shows us the way to pray to the Father. Elder Jeffrey R. Holland elaborated, The praying Christ, that is the example to which we are to point others. The Christ of humility 
the Christ of spiritual communion, the Christ who is dependent upon his Father, the Christ who asks for blessings upon others, the Christ who calls down the powers of heaven, the Christ who submits, yields, and obeys the will of the Father. That is the light we are to show to the world. It is the image of Christ praying such unspeakable things. And again, we can remember what was written in verses 16 and 17 of the previous chapter in 3 Nephi 17. The eye hath never seen, neither hath the ear heard before so great and marvelous things as we saw and heard Jesus speak unto the Father. And no tongue can speak, neither can there be written by any man, neither can the hearts of men conceive so great and marvelous things as we both saw and heard Jesus speak. And no one can conceive of the joy which filled our souls at the time we heard him pray for us unto the Father. So we're reminded at this point as we come into verse 17 that these remarks about prayer so far have been unto the disciples specifically because verse 17 will show us that he's speaking to the multitude. And it came to pass that when Jesus had spoken these words unto his disciples, he turned again unto the multitude and said unto them, Behold, verily, verily, I say unto you, ye must watch and pray always, lest ye enter into temptation, for Satan desireth to have you that he may sift you as wheat. So that's a parallel expression to what the Savior offered in verse 15, when he said, Watch and pray always, lest ye be tempted by the devil, and ye be led away captive by him. So here the counsel is the same, but we get this expression that the Savior once gave to Peter as well, that Satan desireth to have you that he may sift you as wheat. That's actually, I think, a really chilling statement and reminds us of the reality of the fact that we are, in a sense, we're on Satan's turf, that he and his minions surround us and they do want to destroy us. President Henry B. Eyring once said in a CES fireside for young adults, this was in 1999, uh, What does the Master mean when he warns us to pray always? I'm not wise enough to know all of his purposes in giving us a covenant to always remember him and in his warning us to pray always lest we be overcome. But I know one. It is because he knows perfectly the powerful forces that influence us and also what it means to be human. He knows what it is like to have the cares of life press in upon us, and he knows how our human powers to cope are not constant. As the forces around us increase in intensity, whatever spiritual strength was once sufficient will not be enough, and whatever growth in spiritual strength we once thought was possible, greater growth will be made available to us. Both the need for spiritual strength and the opportunity to acquire it will increase at rates which we underestimate at our peril. Start with remembering Him. You will remember what you know and what you love. The Lord hears the prayers of your heart, the feelings of your heart, of love for our Heavenly Father and for His beloved Son, can be so constant that your prayers will ascend always. Elder Bruce R. McConkie once said, with respect to this phrase, sift you as wheat, which again uh, the Savior said to Peter. He said so in Luke chapter 22, verse 31. Elder Bruce R. McConkie has taught, this is an idiomatic expression, which was clear to the people in that day, more so than to people in our day. In essence, and thought content, Jesus is saying, Peter, Satan wants you in his harvest. He wants to harvest your soul and bring you into his granary, into his garner, where he will have you as his disciple. It is the same figure that we use when we say that the field is white already to harvest, and we go out to preach the gospel and harvest the souls of men. Well, Satan wanted Peter. He wanted to sift him as wheat or to harvest his soul. Verse 19, Therefore ye must pray always unto the Father in my name. 
So very persuasive language by the Savior. He's already said to pray always twice in verses 15 and in verses 18, and he's said that that's because of the reality of an adversary that's trying to claim our souls. So then he circles back around to the same statement, you must pray always, or says always pray, here in verse 19. Thomas Arvaleta has brought this commentary together uh, when we think about the role of prayer in shielding us from temptation. First from the Bible Dictionary, and then uh, two things from President Ezra Taft Benson. So first from the Bible Dictionary entry on prayer, prayer is the act by which the will of the Father and the will of the child are brought into correspondence with each other. The object of prayer is not to change the will of God, but to secure for ourselves and for others blessings that God is already willing to grant, but that are made conditional on our asking for them. In his message to the rising generation, President Benson said, If you will earnestly seek guidance from your Heavenly Father, morning and evening, you will be given the strength to shun any temptation. That's a powerful promise. And Now, this is out of President Benson's talk called Pray Always. Here are five ways, he says, to improve our communication with our Heavenly Father. One, we should pray frequently. We should be alone with our Heavenly Father at least two or three times each day, morning, midday, and evening, as the Scripture indicates. And that Scripture, by the way, is Alma chapter 34, verse 21. Those were Amulek's words to the Zoramites. In addition, we are told to pray always. This means that our hearts should be full, drawn out in prayer unto our Heavenly Father continually. He references Amulek once again in Alma chapter 34. Two, we should find an appropriate place where we can meditate and pray. We are admonished that this should be in our closets and in our secret places and in our wilderness. That is, it should be free from distraction in secret. Three, we should prepare ourselves for prayer. If we do not feel like praying, then we should pray until we do feel like praying. We should be humble. We should pray for forgiveness and mercy. We must forgive anyone against whom we have bad feelings. Yet the Scriptures warn that our prayers will be vain if we turn away the needy and the naked and visit not the sick and afflicted and part not of our substance. And there are scriptural references after each of these statements by President Benson. When he speaks of humility, he refers to section 112 of the Doctrine and Covenants. Uh, Then when he talks about forgiveness and mercy, Alma chapter 37, and interestingly, Mark chapter 11, when he says we must forgive anyone towards whom we have bad feelings. So, great instructions from a prophet of God. Four, our prayers should be meaningful and pertinent. We should avoid using the same phrases in each prayer. Any of us would become offended if a friend said the same words to us each day, treated the conversation as a chore, and could hardly wait to finish in order to turn on the television set and forgive us. In all our prayers, it is well to use the sacred pronouns of the scriptures, thee, thou, thy, and thine, when addressing deity instead of the more common pronouns of you, your, and yours. By doing so, we show greater respect to deity. For what should we pray? We should pray about our work, against the power of our enemies and the devil, for our welfare and the welfare of those around us. We should counsel with the Lord regarding all our decisions and activities, We should be grateful enough to give thanks for all we have. We should confess His hand in all things, and gratitude is one of our great sins. The Lord has declared in modern revelation, And he who receiveth all things with thankfulness shall be made glorious, and the things of this earth shall be added unto him, even an hundredfold, yea, more. It's out of Doctrine and Covenants section 78, verse 19. We should ask for what we need, President Benson continues, taking care that we not ask for things that would not be to our detriment. 
James chapter 4, verse 3 uh, says the same. We should ask for strength to overcome our problems. We should pray for the inspiration and well-being of the president of the church, the general authorities, our stake president, our bishop, our quorum president, our home teachers, family members, and our civic leaders. Other suggestions could be made, but with the help of the Holy Ghost, we will know about what we should pray. And finally, number five, after making a request through prayer, we have a responsibility to assist in its being granted. We should listen. Perhaps while we are on our knees, the Lord wants to counsel us. President David O. McKay taught, Sincere praying implies that when we ask for any virtue or blessing, we should work for the blessing and cultivate the virtue. Now the Savior says this in verse 20, and we talked about this a little bit in the introduction to this chapter, And whatsoever ye shall ask the Father in my name, which is right, believing that ye shall receive, behold, it shall be given unto you. The Bible dictionary entry on prayer uh, speaks of praying with the mind of Christ and helps one understand that when we do that, we will inevitably ask that which is right. We won't ask that which goes against the will of the Father. So prayer is also an act of aligning our will with His uh, as we pray to Him. So that little qualifier, which is right, is a key part of this. Then the Savior says this very specifically in verse 21, pray in your families unto the Father. So this concept of praying together as a family is something that we'll read lots of commentary on. He says, always in my name, that your wives and your children may be blessed. President Gordon B. Hinckley once said in a conference report, I feel satisfied that there is no adequate substitute for the morning and evening practice of kneeling together, father, mother, and children. This, more than soft carpets, more than lovely draperies, more than cleverly balanced color schemes, is the thing that will make for better and more beautiful homes. President Henry B. Eyring has written, Parents should teach their children to pray. The child learns both from what the parents do and what they say. The child who sees a mother or a father pass through the trials of life with fervent prayer to God and then hears a sincere testimony that God answered in kindness will remember what he or she saw and heard. When trials come, that individual will be prepared. Here is yet one more and really beautiful piece of commentary from President Gordon B. Hinckley. I know of no single practice that will have a more salutary effect upon your lives than the practice of kneeling together as you begin and close each day. Somehow the little storms that seem to afflict every marriage are dissipated. When kneeling before the Lord, you thank Him for one another, in the presence of one another, and then together invoke His blessings upon your lives, your home, your loved ones, and your dreams. God then will be your partner, and your daily conversations with Him will bring peace into your hearts and a joy into your lives that can come from no other source. Your companionship will sweeten through the years. Your love will strengthen. Your appreciation for one another will grow. Your children will know the security of a home where dwells the Spirit of the Lord. You will gather them together in that home as the church is counseled and teach them in love. They will know parents who respect one another, and a spirit of respect will grow in their hearts. They will experience the security of the kind words softly spoken, and the tempests of their own lives will be stilled. They will know a father and a mother who, living honestly with God, live honestly also with one another and with their fellow man. They will grow up with a sense of appreciation, having heard their parents in prayer express gratitude for blessings great and small. They will mature with faith in the living God. The destroying angel of domestic bitterness will pass you by, and you will know peace and love throughout your lives, which may be extended into all eternity. I could wish for you no greater blessing. 
There's so much power and content in that statement from President Hinckley, I think. He had such a beautiful way with words. Uh, The destroying angel of domestic bitterness, he says, will pass you by as you observe this practice of family prayer. Now verse 22, And behold, ye shall meet together oft. So, so far the Savior has taught the people about the sacrament and has told the disciples to administer it in exactly the way that he prescribed. He has taught them to pray always, both together, and then he's taught them to pray always together as families. Now he's saying, Behold, meet together oft, and ye shall not forbid any man from coming unto you when ye shall meet together, but suffer them that they may come unto you and forbid them not. Well, the Savior has certainly just modeled this to these people of how to treat those who come unto him. He continues on this theme in verse 23, saying, But ye shall pray for them, meaning those who come unto you, and shall not cast them out. And if it so be that they come unto you oft, ye shall pray for them unto the Father in my name. So here we can kind of envision the body of this church, and he's speaking to the people as a church unit and uh, telling them how they should handle people who come to them. McConkie and Millet have written, and in this volume that corresponds with this portion of the Book of Mormon, Brendel Topp joins them. They say the Savior's commandment to the Nephites to not forbid any man from coming unto you when ye shall meet together has special application to us in the church today. While we may not verbally forbid others, members and non-members alike from our fellowship in the church, they may feel forbidden by reason of our attitudes and our actions. President M. Russell Ballard observed, I believe we members do not have the option to extend the hand of fellowship only to relatives, close friends, certain church members, and those selected non-members who express an interest in the church. Limiting or withholding our fellowship seems to me to be contrary to the gospel of Jesus Christ. We might ask ourselves how the newcomers in our wards would be treated if we were the only ones they ever met. Every member of the church should foster the attributes of warmth, sincerity, and love for the newcomers. Brothers and sisters, we members must help with the conversion process by making our wards and branches friendly places with no exclusivity, where all people feel welcome and comfortable. My message is urgent because we need to retain in full fellowship many more of the new converts and return to activity many more of the less active. I urge you to increase the spirit of friendship and pure Christian fellowship in your neighborhoods. A new convert or recently activated member should feel the warmth of being wanted and being welcomed into full fellowship of the church. Members and leaders of the church should nurture and love them as Jesus would. Verse 24, Therefore hold up your light, that it may shine unto the world. Behold, I am the light which ye shall hold up, that which ye have seen me do. Behold, ye see that I have prayed unto the Father, and ye all have witnessed. This is a tall order, of course, for us to do what he has done and to carry his light. But again, he's told us that we can do this by meeting together oft, by praying individually and with families, and by regularly partaking of the sacrament. President N. Eldon Tanner once said, What had the Nephites seen him do? And could I possibly do those things in my home? When the people desired for him to tarry with them a little longer, so he's now recalling, of course, the previous chapter, 3 Nephi 17, he had compassion upon them and lingered with them. Then he healed them, prayed with them, taught them, wept with them, blessed their little children one by one, fed them, and administered and shared the sacrament that they might covenant to always remember him. His ministry among them was about teaching and caring for each individual and about completing the work his father had commanded him to do. 
there was no thought for himself. Now continuing with this line of of thought, uh, where the Savior says, Do what you've seen me do so far, he says in verse 25, And ye see that I have commanded that none of you should go away, but rather have commanded that you should come unto me, or that ye should come unto me, that ye might feel and see. So he's saying something very specific there. He's saying, You remember how I appeared among you, and I allowed you to come unto me and fill the prince in my my hands and in my feet. So then he says, Even so shall ye do unto the world. And whosoever breaketh this commandment suffereth himself to be led into temptation. So it's the concept of fellowship here that's being discussed. So now as we come into verse 26, we see now that the Savior will speak specifically to his disciples. And he's going to talk to them about this concept of partaking of the sacrament worthily. So he's been very clear in his instructions to be inclusive to those who come unto the church. But he's also saying that this ordinance, not only should it not be added to or taken from, or you're no longer built upon my rock, but one must partake of it worthily. Uh, So this is what he's telling his priesthood leaders on this occasion. Then he'll come out of this and once again um, acknowledge the importance of still fellowshipping those who are unworthy to partake of the sacrament so that they someday may be able to do so. So verse 26, And now it came to pass that when Jesus had spoken these words, he turned his eyes again upon the disciples whom he had chosen, and he said unto them, Behold, verily, verily, I say unto you, I give unto you another commandment, and then I must go unto my Father, that I may fulfill other commandments which he has given me. So he's finally come back to what he said at the beginning of 3 Nephi chapter 17 and restated his intention to leave them for a time. And now, behold, this is the commandment which I give unto you, that ye shall not suffer any one knowingly to partake of my flesh and blood unworthily when ye shall minister it. For whoso eateth and drinketh my flesh and blood unworthily, eateth and drinketh damnation to his soul. Therefore, if ye know that a man is unworthy to eat and drink of my flesh and blood, ye shall forbid him. This suggests that there is order in what the Savior gives to us and teaches us, and there, there, there is an order that comes with uh, repenting and exercising faith unto repentance and being baptized, receiving the gift of the Holy Ghost, and then partaking of the sacrament in remembrance of that covenant of baptism. There's order. So he's showing us that here. While he has definitely established that it is good and right, necessary to partake of the sacrament, it still should not be partaken of unworthily. And this is for our good, and it's for the good of the unworthy. Elder John Groberg once wrote, If we desire to improve, which is to repent, and are not under priesthood restriction, then in my opinion we are worthy. If, however, we have no desire to improve, if we have no intention of following the guidance of the Spirit, we must ask, are we worthy to partake, or are we making a mockery of the very purpose of the sacrament, which is to act as a catalyst for personal repentance and improvement? If we remember the Savior and all he has done and will do for us, we will improve our actions and thus come closer to him, which keeps us on the road to eternal life. If, however, we refuse to repent and improve, if we do not remember him and keep his commandments, then we have stopped our growth, and that is damnation to our souls. The sacrament is an intensely personal experience, and we are the ones who knowingly are worthy or otherwise. As we worthily partake of the sacrament, we will sense those things we need to improve in and receive the help and determination to do so. 
No matter what our problems, the sacrament always gives hope. Most of these problems we must work out ourselves. For example, if we aren't paying our tithing, we simply determine to start doing so. But for some problems, we must see our bishop. The Spirit will let us know which. Ogden and Skinner have written, While of these emblems we partake, let us remember and be sure our hearts and hands are clean and pure. That, of course, comes from hymn uh, 173, While of these emblems we partake. If we participate in the sacrament unworthily, pretending to take upon us the name of Christ and promising to remember him and obey him, and we are not serious about that covenant, nor really intending to keep it, we are taking the name of the Lord in vain, and the Lord will not hold him guiltless that taketh his name in vain. If we know someone is living in sin and is not worthy to partake of the sacrament, we should encourage him not to participate in the sacred ordinance, but we should not expel him and reject him. We should work with him, encourage him, minister to him. It may be that he will return and repent and be healed and saved. And Of course, the Savior will say this in just a few verses. Priesthood leaders, those who preside, are responsible for monitoring the worthiness of participants in sacred ordinances. No one else may forbid someone to take the sacrament. That, of course, is a most important point that Ogden and Skinner are making. The Savior is giving these instructions to his priesthood leaders. He is not telling the church members generally to forbid one another, it seems. He's already spoken on the subject of judgment, particularly in 3 Nephi chapter 14. So now that the Savior has established this about partaking of the sacrament unworthily, he will make these very important uh, clarifications, beginning in verse 30. Nevertheless, ye shall not cast him out from among you. Who is him here? Well, it's the person that's unworthy. But ye shall minister unto him, and shall pray for him unto the Father in my name. And if it so be that he repenteth, and is baptized in my name, then shall ye receive him, and shall minister unto him of my flesh and blood. But if he repent not, he shall not be numbered among my people, that he may not destroy my people. For behold, I know my sheep, and they are numbered. So here is the Savior of the world, the God of creation, the Jehovah of the Old Testament, who at times can seem uh, that, that he's personified in that volume by little else than justice. Although I personally don't agree with that view, I have to say, I think that there is a great deal of mercy uh, on display in the Old Testament. Nevertheless, here is this same God, and we can see here that he very much is interested in those who are not worthy to partake of the sacrament, that they're still kept in fellowship, and he wants to facilitate their repentance. He wants to give them a chance. Verse 32, Nevertheless, ye shall not cast him out of your synagogues or your places of worship, for unto such shall ye continue to minister. For ye know not, but what they will return and repent, and come unto me with full purpose of heart and I shall heal them, and ye shall be the means of bringing salvation unto them. Now, notice his use of the word healing here. I think it's very significant. In the New Testament, we see him healing people and forgiving their sins. And there's a time when the man is raised through the roof on, on, um, on a bed, and the Savior heals him, and then he's spurned for so doing, and he says, what's more difficult? Telling him that to arise or walk or forgiving him of his sins. And so, uh, he's making that connection there. But here, it is absolutely unmistakable. He is saying that he shall heal those who are out of sorts with him, who are caught up in sin, who are um, who, who, who Satan, remember earlier he talked about Satan having claim on the souls of mankind by wanting to sift them as wheat. He will heal these people spiritually. 
and he can still bring salvation unto them, but it is his disciples that are the means of bringing this salvation to them. Here is the Institute Manual, making the same point that Ogden and Skinner did a moment ago. It says, Notice that in 3 Nephi chapter 18, verse 26, the Savior ceased speaking to the multitude and turned to the leaders whom he had chosen. So everything we've just been reading has been to his leaders. His message in verses 28 and 29, uh, about not allowing those to partake of the sacrament unworthily, was given to priesthood leaders as a warning against allowing the unworthy to partake of the sacrament. We learn from these verses that members of the church should leave the responsibility of determining worthiness to partake of the sacrament to those the Lord has called to make such judgments, such as the bishop or stake president. This is kind of a subtlety, and um, if this portion is not carefully read, we can certainly misinterpret it as to mean that it devolves upon each one of us as fellow members of the church to judge whether someone is worthy or not to partake of the sacrament. And that is not what is being taught here. Once again, the Savior is speaking to his leaders. Now, finally, here's this from Elder Neely Maxwell. As the Lord says to not cast out is by itself an inadequate response, we must additionally make room for them and give them a place among us. Always we must continue to minister, because for some, we shall be the means of bringing salvation to them. No wonder this effort does not involve a new program. Rather, it involves a principle, the fundamental and regular keeping of the second great commandment. Our attitude toward the less active should be that we are fellow servants, just as was the case even with angels who have bidden respectful and kneeling mortals to arise since the angels were fellow servants. And that was an expression that we found in Revelation chapter 22, verses 8-9. through Since you and I are at least a little lower than the angels, this posture of service and of fellow servants surely includes us. Note that the resurrected Jesus, having completed a perfect mortal ministry, gives us this counsel clearly reflecting the style and substance of his leadership and charity, reminding us that we know not who will return and repent. Note, too, that without belaboring it, the sequence is first the return, then a completion of the process of change in a nurturing and ministering environment. The Lord said, He shall heal them, but we shall be the means of bringing salvation unto them. This is a wondrous scripture, full of wisdom and direction and consolation. We should not forget that for many in the church who do not yet have the witness of the Holy Ghost that Jesus is the Christ, they must believe on the words of those of us who do know. Verse 33, Therefore keep these sayings which I have commanded you, that ye come not under condemnation, for woe unto him whom the Father condemneth. And I give unto you these commandments because of the disputations which have been among you, and blessed are ye if ye have no disputations among you. So this is the second time where we learn contextually that there were disputations among the disciples of Jesus Christ. Uh, they, they were procedural questions, really. Um, previously, it was in 3 Nephi chapter 11, towards the end of the chapter. He talked about disputation with respect to the, the mode and manner and doctrine of baptism. And here, it seems that there have been disputations among his leaders as to how to handle those who are unworthy to participate in the ordinances of the church, but who still should be fellowshipped in the event that they will become worthy and will return to him. So this, understandably, was a matter of disputations for them, and the Savior is clearing that up on this occasion. Well, now the Savior has come to the end of his teachings, both to his disciples and to the multitude, and now we'll see that he finally ascends to the Father. 
He does the thing that he intimated at the beginning of 3 Nephi 17 when he told them that he was going to go to the Father, and then he intimated again in this chapter as well. Now this time has finally come. Verse 35, And now I go unto the Father. So perhaps they're still looking upon him steadfastly, as if he would tarry with them for a little longer. But now it is truly time for him to go unto the Father, because it is expedient that I should go unto the Father for your sakes. So he adds that. Uh, in 35.17, he said, I should go unto the Father, and I'm going to visit the lost tribes of Israel as well. And here he says, it's expedient that I go for your sakes. We're in a similar period right now because we're not in his presence, and that is expedient for our sakes for the time being. It's uh, part of our mortal probation. Verse 36, And it came to pass that when Jesus had made an end of these sayings, he touched with his hand the disciples whom he had chosen one by one, even until he had touched them all, and spake unto them as he touched them. So he's doing something very specific here, uh, ordinance-like, really. And uh, he's also preparing them for his departure, as we will see in this next verse, by giving them the gift of the Holy Ghost. And the multitude heard not the words which he spake, therefore they did not bear record, but the disciples bear record that he gave them power to give the Holy Ghost. So that's what happened on this occasion, is that they were given power to give the Holy Ghost. Um, and I will show unto you hereafter that this record is true, says the record keeper. The Book of Mormon Institute manual says the multitude did not know what the Savior did or said when he touched his disciples and spoke to them. However, Mormon informed us that the disciples testified that he gave them the disciples power to give the Holy Ghost. Moroni fulfilled his father's promise to the reader that I will show unto you hereafter that this record is true. Uh, when he later gave an account of this event and the words Christ spoke to the twelve disciples, he further explained that when the Savior touched his disciples to give them authority, he was laying on his hands. So we'll read of that in Moroni chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, when Moroni will hearken to this very specific incident. McConkie and Millet have written of this event. It appears from verse 37 that the touching here referred to is a laying on of hands, a setting apart or ordination. Again, they, they also refer to Moroni chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. That's how, uh, they, they have, that's how we all have our confidence uh, in the fact that that's what actually happened here uh, when it says that he touched them, he laid his hands upon them, because Moroni teaches us that. As a result of the fulfillment of the law and as part of the establishment of a new dispensation and new church, the Savior ordains and sets apart his disciples and gives them authority to confer the gift of the Holy Ghost and set in order the new organization. The words spoken by Christ to the twelve, which were not heard by the multitude, were preserved. Daniel Ludlow has taught this about this incident in his companion to your study of the Book of Mormon. He said, When the Savior left his disciples after his first appearance to them, he touched with his hand the disciples whom he had chosen one by one, even until he had touched them all, and spake unto them as he touched them. The disciples bear record that he gave them power to give the Holy Ghost, and I will show unto you hereafter that this record is true. Evidently, the pronoun I in this quotation refers to the historian Mormon when he promises, I will show unto you hereafter that this record is true. And again, that's how that verse ends. It's kind of strange how it, it shifts because uh, Mormon is acting as narrator, but then he refers to himself in the first person. That is, Mormon is going to show later in his record that the Savior did give the disciples the power to bestow the Holy Ghost. Some persons might question whether or not Mormon does indicate this later in his record. However, it is of interest to note that as soon as Moroni starts writing, he gives us the exact wording of the prayer of the Savior on this occasion. 
Now the miraculous events of this long day are coming to a close because the Savior, after having appeared to the people in 3 Nephi 11, is now going to go from among them. So verses 38 and 39 say, And it came to pass that when Jesus had touched them all, there came a cloud and overshadowed the multitude that they could not see Jesus. And while they were overshadowed, he departed from them and ascended into heaven. And the disciples saw and did bear record that he ascended again into heaven. So he came among the people, taught them so many incredible things, performed so many miracles, allowed each of them to come to him one by one. They asked him to tarry with him a little longer, and he did. And that's what 3 Nephi 17 and 18 are. It's that period where he tarried with them and performed all those miracles in chapter 17. And now uh, all that he did in chapter 18 we have read. So the time has finally come, and he has ascended back into heaven. So we turn the page, of course, with great interest in 3 Nephi chapter 19 to see what happens next. Before we do that, here's some commentary. First from Ogden and Skinner. Jesus touched his leader disciples one by one, authorizing them to bestow the gift of the Holy Ghost on the others once he departed. And Ogden and Skinner also chime in on this subject, making it clear that Moroni later taught that this was him laying on his hands. All ordinances are physical. They all involve touch. Touch can provide a tangible transmission of power and love. When we experience a scene like this in our own lives, it is, as we say, touching because it affects us emotionally and spiritually. As with the ancient leaders, we hope Jesus will continue to touch our souls and symbolically place his hands upon our lives so that we may live. And now here's this final thought from John Welch. Thus ended the first day. The incomparable sermon at the temple was over. It was a manifestation of divine will and presence never to be forgotten. From this experience come many things, teachings of practical ethical value, an understanding of that which was fulfilled and that which remained yet to be fulfilled, a comprehension of the continuity and transition from the old law to the new, knowledge and testimony of the resurrection and exaltation of Jesus Christ, commandments and covenants, and also a basis for religious ritual. Out of such an experience would naturally flow sacred ceremonies, for it was typical and usual for the temple in Israel to routinize the momentous, thus rendering it part and parcel of the ongoing religious experience of the individual Israelite and of the people collectively. Evidently, such also occurred among the Nephites. Several texts from the Sermon at the Temple are known to have been ritually intended and oriented. From the Sermon at the Temple came the Nephite liturgical prayers for baptism, and we can see that in 3 Nephi chapter 11, verses 23 through 28. For the administration of the sacrament, which we saw in this chapter, 3 Nephi chapter 18, and we'll later get Moroni chapters 4 and 5 with the specific wording of the prayers. For the bestowal of the gift of the Holy Ghost, and for the ordination of priests and teachers. This gives reason to believe that more of the sermon at the temple, perhaps much more, was ritually understood and transmitted. The words of Jesus as many as were permissible, were written down, apparently immediately, and checked by Jesus, and we'll see evidence of that later in 3 Nephi chapter 23. Further indication that the Nephite disciples gave sacred and meticulous regard to each element of the Sermon at the Temple. Not all is known to us, of course, for the people were taught secret things that were unspeakable and not lawful to be written, and many things were forbidden them that they should utter. But as much as possible, they went forth and established the church of Jesus Christ, based upon these very words of Jesus, words that profoundly put all things into perspective and coherence, 
These things point toward a view of the Sermon at the Temple as a sacred experience that was recorded, revered, repeated, and institutionalized that could be ritually represented and reenacted for other audiences. It seems to me that something of this sort indeed occurred, for the disciples went forward to preach abroad not only words and ideas, but also dramatic events, demonstrating things which they had both heard and seen. That's a really thoughtful way for us, I think, to end this chapter, as um, John Welch is giving us an opportunity to think about the entire sermon at the temple and its effect, since now this first day has come to a close and the Savior has ascended back into heaven. So the people are now left without his presence. Uh, His disciples have been given the authority to give the Holy Ghost to others who are present, but there's still a great deal more to come. And uh, when we turn the page and go into 3 Nephi chapter 19, we'll see that the Savior will again appear among the people. And we rightfully expect that because he did talk about coming on the morrow and teaching them more at the beginning of 3 Nephi chapter 17. We know what that will be. Uh, He will pick back up on this theme of the gathering of Israel, the nature and scope of Israel, and uh, many prophecies about the Gentiles and and their, their interplay with Israel in the latter days and how salvation will be brought to all. So he's yet to teach all of that, and he'll he'll call upon Isaiah again. He'll also call upon Malachi. So all of that is to come further into the book of 3 Nephi when he does return and teach the people more. 3 Nephi 19 will be somewhat ritualistic um, in nature, and the Savior will be praying again in very interesting ways, and the people will have yet again another Uh, experience that's so remarkable and so singular that it's hard even to convey with words. It's a really beautiful chapter, so uh, we'll we'll read that with great delight here uh, in 3 Nephi chapter 19. For now, this brings us to the end of 3 Nephi chapter 18. Thank you for listening to Come Follow Me Deep Dive. If this podcast has benefited you, please consider sharing it with your family and friends. By this point in October of 2020, this podcast has reached almost 100,000 listens and has been heard in many parts of the world. I love hearing from you. If you have the time to reach out to me, as many of you have, to share episodes on social media, and to write a review on iTunes, you will greatly help my efforts to get this podcast to even more listeners. I want to acknowledge the resources that have helped me prepare this and previous episodes of this podcast. The Book of Mormon Institute Manual, Kelly Ogden and Andrew Skinner's verse-by-verse commentary on the Book of Mormon, and the revised edition of Thomas Arvaleta's Book of Mormon Study Guide have provided me with rich and insightful commentary. Introductions, chapter analyses, and sectional divisions are my own. Parallel passages of Scripture and general conference addresses that come to mind also play a prominent role in this podcast, as do my own thoughts and writings. For them, and any errors that you find in them, I, of course, am solely responsible. I hope that this podcast has had the effect of drawing you to the scriptural text, a text that is endlessly rich with detail and generously adorned with truths that help us navigate through our own exile story in mortality. I have found, and hope that you have too, that carefully studying the Word, particularly in the Book of Mormon, has the inevitable benefit of drawing us closer to its author. I offer my personal witness that his attention is fixed upon us. 
He delights to bless us and to honor our efforts to come to know Him better. So, have a wonderful day, keep in touch, and thank you for listening.